0: Good morning. Please turn in your Bibles to this morning's scripture, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 10. If you would like to follow along using a pew Bible, you may find it on passage page 1001. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hebrews 2, beginning with verse 5. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. This is the word of the Lord. Be Please be seated.
1: Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, open our eyes that we may see Jesus. Open our ears that we may receive your word. And open our hearts that the gospel might change and conform us to his image. We ask in his name. Amen. Most people know the name Jesse Owens, and if you don't, you should. Owens an African-American, was an amazingly gifted athlete who excelled in track and field. In 1935, he managed to set three world records in the space of about an hour at a meet in Michigan. It remains a feat that has never been repeated or challenged. And then the very next year, in 1936, in a very politically charged environment, Owens traveled to Berlin, Germany, to take part in the Olympic Games there, overseen by the new German chancellor, Adolf Hitler, who hoped to show the world, at those Olympic Games, the supremacy of the Aryan race, the master race. But it was Owens who stole the show, He won four gold medals in seven days, an amazing feat achieved in the face of genuine adversity. He was the most successful athlete at the Berlin Games. Jesse Owens was the epitome of an Olympic champion. The world was on the brink of World War. Germany was under the control of the racist Nazi party. And America was deeply divided. in the the midst of segregation and racial inequalities. African Americans in his own country and people all over the world needed a champion to represent them. And whether he signed up for that role or not, Jesse Owens became that champion, someone who could use his athletic abilities to fight for the marginalized and overlooked people groups of the world just by overcoming and winning. There's something inside of us that looks for heroes and champions among us. And we want a champion that's like us. Someone who represents us, who understands us and can fight our battles for us. Someone who is one of us. Certainly this need for a champion goes all the way back to the very beginning. After being deceived by the serpent and losing their intimacy with the father, our first parents, Adam and Eve, were overwhelmed with guilt and with shame for what they had done. They were hopeless, thinking that it had all come to an end. But even as the curse was being pronounced upon them, God hinted that there would be a champion one day. Someone to represent them and all of their children's generations. A champion that would be one of them. And who would be able to crush the serpent's head. Undoing the curse that they were now under. Someone who would restore what had been lost. Innocence intimacy with the Father, and peace and rest in a perfect paradise. As we look to God's word today, we're going to see the champion of champions, the one our hearts long for, Christ, our mighty champion. The sermon title comes from our past December hymn of the month, Joy Has Dawn, and it's an appropriate descriptor. Jesus in light of today's passage. Last week, you'll remember, we looked at how the author of Hebrews made practical application to his previous exposition of the scriptures in his first warning to pay attention to the gospel. In the passage before us today, he jumps back into his explanation of Old Testament passages, these passages that show Jesus' superiority over everything And this time he goes to Psalm 8, in response to the question that he creates in verse 5 when he says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. Well, okay, if it's not the angels who are going to rule the world to come, who is it? The answer may surprise you a bit. Because the world to come will be subjected to the rule of a man. To this point in the letter, the author has emphasized Jesus' deity as the one who is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power, the eternal Son of God who sits upon his eternal throne in heaven. And now, in bringing us to Psalm 8, we see Jesus, the Son of Man, Reclaiming the calling and glory of humanity by being the champion of our salvation. I think that sometimes, perhaps due to those who have challenged and denied the deity of Christ in our day, that we tend to shy away from emphasizing his humanity. But as we'll see in our passage, to do so is to rob ourselves of the riches and glory of this truth we must hold Jesus' deity and humanity in a balanced tension. To emphasize one over the other as more important than the other is to have an unbiblical view of the nature of Christ. He is truly God and truly man. The writer states in verse 6 this interesting phrase, it has been testified somewhere. I don't think it's because he doesn't know which psalm he's quoting here, or that David is its author. He clearly had a very strong grasp of the Old Testament, as we've already seen. What would make more sense is to assume that he wants the readers to focus on the subject of what he's quoting, instead of the psalm's origin. Psalm 8 is a creation psalm. We sang it earlier in our service. The psalm is a poetic summary of man's creation and purpose found in Genesis chapter 1. There we read the creation mandate. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over all the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over every living thing that moves on the earth. Man and woman were created with dignity and honor, created in the image and likeness of God. God blessed them and he gave them a mandate, a calling to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, to subdue it, to have dominion over every living thing. The writer of Hebrews quotes David's psalm when he says, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Who are we that God would even take notice of us? What could be a higher calling in our lives than to rule over God's creation? What could be more glorious than to be made in the image and likeness of God? We had it all. And yet, it wasn't enough, was it? Adam and Eve sinned against God. They wanted to live with their own mandate, their own rules. They wanted to reflect their own glory and worth, not the glory of God. And from that day to this one, mankind has been in open rebellion to its creator, insisting that we are made in the image of our own idolatrous imagination and instead of subduing and ruling the creation, we bow to it in worship and are subdued and ruled by it. We see the effects of this all around us, don't we? It's everywhere. In the brokenness of our world, in the slavery to sin and to death that people are under. But David reminds us in the psalm that what we are is not the totality of our God-given destiny. This is not who we were created to be. And there is yet hope for the restoration of man's dignity and honor before God. It doesn't seem that David had the Messiah in mind when he wrote his song, but rather he was focused upon humanity under the first Adam. The writer of Hebrews, however, sees the fulfillment of our creation calling in the last Adam, Jesus Christ, the perfect man. This man is fulfilling the mandate that Adam and Eve failed to do, and one day all the earth and all its inhabitants will be subdued by him and for him in his final victory. For a time seemed as though Satan had thwarted God's calling on humanity. Things were upside down. But Christ has come. And as we look to him in his exalted and glorified state today, we we can see our future. The Son of God rises above Adam as the one with firstborn status, the heir of all things. Sure, in the timeline of history, He may be the second Adam, but in status, he is preeminent above all humanity. He is Christ, our mighty champion, the champion of our calling. Jesus is also the champion of our glory. With Christ is the fulfillment of the Son of Man. In verse 6, we see that in verses 7 and 8, Three stages of Christ's humanity in its glory. His past, his present, and his future. Look at these phrases. In his being made a little lower than the angels, we see his past, his incarnation, his humiliation on the cross. And in his being crowned with glory and honor, we see his present State His exaltation at the right hand of the Father following his resurrection and ascension. And in putting everything in subjection under his feet, we see his future. His final victory. Jesus, the man, is his work of redemption restores mankind to its place of honor and glory. Because of the fall... The pathway to this restored glory has to be through suffering and death. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 11 through 12, the Apostle Paul says it this way. This saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. The angels don't experience suffering and death. Jesus, the creator of the angels, condescended, stooped below them in order to restore the glory of man. It was through his tasting of death, as the author of Hebrews says, being fully in death's pain and effects, that Jesus opened this path. He had to experience the suffering and death that we brought upon ourselves. Oh, what love and grace God has shown us in his Son. Verse 9 is the first occasion that the writer identifies him by name. To this point, he's referred to him as the Son and other titles. But here, the author refers to him by name. And he uses that earthly name, Jesus. He emphasizes his humanity, his humiliation, and his death in using that name, God saves Jesus. In the beginning, man's glory was found in the glory of God and being made in his image and likeness. But that glory was marred in the fall. The glory of man after the cross is restored in the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. Through his humiliation in the incarnation, his cross of suffering, his exaltation in his resurrection and ascension of the throne, and his future final victory in his judgment and making all things new. Listen to Paul's contrast of the glory of Adam And the glory of Jesus, who he calls the last Adam in Romans 15. For as by man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Thus it is written the first Adam became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Jesus is the champion of our salvation. As we continue in verse 10, the author of Hebrews says that Jesus was made perfect through suffering. He repeats this very thought two more times, as we'll see in the, in the book of Hebrews later on. Is he implying here in some way that Jesus is incomplete or imperfect? No. I mean, that would counter everything he has said up to this point. Being made perfect through suffering has with it the idea of a completion. Jesus' suffering on earth qualified him to be the savior of his people. It was necessary for him To be the founder of our salvation, or as we will see in weeks ahead, the perfect high priest. And that came only through his suffering. Suffering, his suffering, and our salvation are inextricably linked together. This is the work of redemption. In his humanity, Jesus realized the potential of what God designed in the beginning. And as the eternal Son of God, he is able to impart, to give that gift to us. If you're one of the redeemed, one who Jesus died for on the cross, then your salvation is much, much, much more than some kind of fire insurance. It is the guaranteed hope and promise that when you follow Christ in death and in resurrection, you will be fully restored as a complete and perfect man or woman. And your restored humanity will be sweeter than it ever could have been in the perfection of Eden. Because it has been purchased by the love of God with the precious blood of his son. Maybe like me, when you mess up or when you fall into sin yet again, you're tempted to say, well, what can you expect? I'm only human. But Maybe it'd be better stated this way. Well, what can you expect? I'm only a broken, unrealized human. Because to be truly, fully human, is to be what Jesus is in his humanity. He came to save us from our sin and to fulfill our destiny so that we could fulfill it too. He became one of us so that we could be restored to the Father and live with him forever. The result of the fall and all subsequent sin is death. Humanity's lost in hopelessness with no way out of our predicament. We need a champion. Someone who could do something about it. So God came to us, not merely in a human disguise, and not temporarily. He demonstrated his solidarity to his special creation in sending his son the man, Jesus Christ. He took on a body like our bodies forever. And in that body, he suffered and died for us. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. He did this that humanity That you and me, all those who by faith believe in him, might be restored to the original design of our creator. Jesus had to be made lower than the angels for a time, that he might in his humiliation make a way for us to be restored. Jesus is the picture of what it is to be fully human. So how does having this knowledge affect how we interact with one another? If your family members are image bearers who are destined for the calling and glory that awaits us, how should you treat them now? What about people from a different country, a different ethnicity, a different color skin, a different language? How about your co-workers? How about people with different political points of view? The world would have us set up divisions based upon these things but Christ in his church breaks down all these divisions and makes us one in him and restored. I want to read a quote from C.S. Lewis that is a bit lengthy. It's a little longer than what I'd normally like to read. But let me encourage you to listen very carefully to these words. This is from his book, The Weight of Glory. He says this. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, Only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Humanity, male and female, are God's special creation, made in the image of God for the enjoyment of God and for the glory of God. That fact alone gives dignity, worth, and honor to everybody you know. And yet, in the ugliness and vileness of sin, humanity wanders in the dark doing all manner of evil to one another. The darkness of our hearts prohibits us from seeing ourselves or one another as image bearers of God. We devalue life. We see one another in terms of being useful tools to prop up our self-centered idolatry. We reject the creator and turn from our created purpose, choosing to play in the muddy pig pen of depravity rather than embracing the restored calling and glory of humanity given to us in the salvation that we find in Jesus. After Jesus completed his work on earth and was about to ascend to heaven, He gave his followers an updated, better version of the creation mandate. He said this to his followers. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus, our mighty champion, has fulfilled the calling that we could not fulfill. He has restored the glory that we lost, and he has purchased salvation for us at his own expense. And if that weren't enough, he has renewed that calling. The calling is still to be fruitful and multiply, folks. But not physically for the earth. Spiritually for the kingdom of God. The calling is still to subdue and have dominion, but not over the animals of creation only, but by making disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them all that Jesus has taught us. And this mandate has behind it all the authority in heaven and earth, which is given to the perfect man, Jesus Christ. Our champion not only sends us with his authority, but he promises to be with us every step of the way. He's also renewed the lost glory of humanity. Not simply of the humanity created in the garden. But now we can magnify the glory of the Son of God through the working of his Holy Spirit in our lives. And finally, as the champion of our salvation, Jesus has renewed the mutual love of God and his people in saving us. I have no doubt that the pure love that Adam and Eve enjoyed with God as they walked with him in the cool of the day was something very special. And certainly nothing that we will know because sin has entered into the world. But I submit this that the love Jesus has restored to us through the grace of God by tasting death for us is sweeter than it was in the garden. Because his love for us isn't only expressed in creating us. It was expressed even more profoundly in his sacrifice to redeem us. And our love for God isn't only the love of the creature to the Creator, but it is also the love of those who have been rescued from certain death by a Savior. Christ, our mighty champion, is restoring what it means to be human by bringing many sons and daughters to glory. He has given us a mandate to join him in that calling by taking this glorious news to the world. May we seize that calling. May we glory in the perfect man, Jesus Christ. And may we rest in the love of his salvation for us. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the answer comes back. We are your creation and we have been redeemed in Jesus Christ, your son. We are the bride of Christ if we know him today. And so, Father, would you help us that as we struggle in this fallen world and with the sin that is still fighting and warring against us. Would you help us to live in the light of the glory of Jesus Christ? Would you help us to seize the calling upon our lives, to take the gospel to the end?